Paul's charge to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What a text, huh? What a text. Wish I was prepared. All right, you guys can have a seat. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. Good morning. Thanks for the fish, whoever that was. Appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're in the middle of a series about the church. Why? Because I'm not sure if we're all on the same page as to what the church is supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do, what we're supposed to fight for, what we're not supposed to fight for. Like, this is important stuff. And so I thought, man, 1 Timothy is going to give our church a framework. We have changed so much in the last six months. We've changed a lot in the last year. There's so many people here, and I think there's a lot of assumption about doxa and who we are and what we do, but we need to get on the same page as to our responsibilities as a church. And so we're going through this book, and um, just want to welcome those of you who are uh, on live stream, tuning in with us. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're out of town. Uh, we're glad that you can be with us, studying God's Word together as we continue in this verse-by-verse study of the book of First Timothy. And the title of the message this morning is, The Good Warfare of Spiritual Warfare. Okay? The Good Warfare of Spiritual Warfare. Now, I don't know about you, but I would say that spiritual warfare is one of the most misunderstood topics in the church today. Spiritual warfare can tend to take kind of one of two trains of thought. Either spiritual warfare is like Satan behind everything, right? You're on a run in the morning, you sprain your ankle, that was Satan. He got me, right? And you're like really fired up about it, so you give the shh, shh, instead of the shh, shh. Satan. Or, or, or you're like on your way to church and the nail that your tire runs over and immediately you're like, that was Satan and his demons. And you have this like mentality that behind every rock, Satan is lurking as if Satan was specifically trying to pop your tire because you're that important to the kingdom of God. That God forbid, Satan himself is coming to pop your tire. You didn't get one of the minions. No, you got Satan. Okay? That's one of the sides that, that can happen in this whole thing. Uh, lots of demon exorcism type language, lots of communication is that that's the spiritual warfare that the Bible's talking about predominantly. Or you go the other way, and we're kind of sophisticated, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we've evolved. You know, Satan, that was so, like, a long time ago. We don't do that anymore. Plus, I mean, come on. Do we really believe that there's some dude in the sky with a pitchfork uh, and a tail? And, and by the way, that's not at all how the Bible describes Satan, although you may see someone like that show up at your door tonight, <laughs> right, and ring the doorbell and ask for candy. Just, just be, be a gracious candy giver tonight. 
and tell them God loves them, right? Sometimes Christians, we struggle with the, the, the Halloween part. We, we, maybe we just give great candy and, and encourage our neighbors to come see us and be able to talk about Jesus with them, right? We have that opportunity, right? So spiritual warfare can go one of two ways, either pretend or way over the top. Now you add to that the fact that we live in such a remarkably comfortable culture. We, we seek after comfort. We found it in the suburbs to be sure. And because of that, we have a massive aversion to warfare. We have a massive aversion to anything that is uncomfortable. We will choose churches based on what makes us feel the most comfortable. That's the story of the consumer church. We just figure out what you guys want and we do that and then you show up and then the church grows and we're like, can you, make, can you believe it? That's amazing. Well, you literally gave people exactly what they wanted in a culture that's bent on people getting exactly what they want. They don't want to be uncomfortable. Don't make them uncomfortable. And so you have this problem. You can maybe even add to that. We have this and I've talked about it before, the 11th commandment, thou must be nice always. And so spiritual warfare, we're like, we, anything that doesn't seem nice is not okay with us. We, we've got this, you remember that song, War? What is it? It's exactly what we believe. That is exactly what we believe. You guys just sang yourself into your own position. We're confident that spiritual warfare is good for absolutely nothing, but here's the problem. The Bible is crystal clear. You and I are in a war, and it's happening right now. And no, 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 it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities who promote demonic doctrines and ideologies. That's where the battle is fought that secretly creep in to pervert the gospel, okay? Listen, there are a lot of things we shouldn't be fighting as Christians that we spend way too much fighting battles we shouldn't be fighting. I am talking about demonic ideologies that seek in to creep, uh, creep in to pervert the gospel. When we're dealing with the gospel and we have demonic ideologies that are trying to infiltrate, subvert, pervert the gospel, we have a problem, and it is waging. This war is happening right now. Sometimes it's waging more intensely than in other times, but be sure it is going on at all times. In fact, we're probably in the midst of a season where there's been quite a bit of spiritual warfare. I mean, I think there's ways we've been thinking ever since COVID. I don't think any of us were thinking beforehand. I'll give you an example. No one knew what Romans 13 meant until COVID happened. You want to know why? Because there was no issues in dealing with Romans 13 to that extent. So no one really understood what it mean, meant. And we had to go back in history to try to figure it out and actually get more in depth in the passage to get a sense for what we, what we were dealing with there. So we've got this, these seasons where warfare comes in intense times. And this is one of those seasons in the church in Ephesus. And Paul calls Timothy to the front lines of this battle, a battle, mind you, that Timothy, this 35-year-old pastor, has been given by Paul that must be waged in the leadership. Amongst a subset of the leaders of the church, he is to go, and he has a certain responsibility. And in this last sentence, it's one sentence in the Greek, verses 18 to 20, one sentence in the Greek, three verses in the English. Remember, the verses aren't inspired. They're just there to help us remember where things are. 
One sentence to kind of tie everything together, all the main threads of the chapter, Paul brings to a conclusion here. And this is the big idea of where he's going. A spiritual battle wages for the gospel. And God's servant must take the right things with him. A spiritual battle wages for the gospel and God's servant must take the right things with them. Okay, so what are those things? Remember, this is written to Timothy. Paul has given Timothy a specific responsibility. Timothy is to come. He's to confront the leaders of the church. What does he need in the midst of the battle as it's waging, as it's going at a particularly intense time, what does he need? Here's the first thing he needs. All God's servants need in the midst of the battle, especially when it gets hot, a confidence in their calling. Timothy needed to be reminded of his calling. He needed to have a confidence that came from his calling. He needed to know he was coming in authority when he was addressing the issue. He needed to know he had apostolic backing. He needed to know he had ecclesial backing or the support of the church. And so here's where Paul goes. The whole point of chapter one, and we saw this from the very beginning, is that Paul's given Timothy this charge. Do you remember? The same charge of verse three. Look at it with me. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, you stay here at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's the charge. Go in there and deal with, get them to stop teaching heterodoxy, okay? Charge is a strong word, guys. It's a military word. It's like you have an obligatory duty to go in there and address the fact that they're teaching this different teaching. What was it? Well, the best we can understand is it was promoting a kind of speculation about the Old Testament that led to self-righteousness instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation that comes for sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, this is really important to say this right now. Uh, more than everything we talk about today, I, I want to make sure you know the gospel. Like, I want to make sure you're saved. And you go, saved from what? And here's the thing. Our culture, lots of things that people say we need salvation from. You, you need salvation mainly from one thing, and that is sin. You need salvation from sin because you are a sinner, and the wages of sin is death, and sin, uh, because God is holy, is 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 like um, separated from God, uh, can't dwell together with God. And so you have a problem that if you were to stand before a holy God and give an account for your life in accordance with the standard of God's law, you, regardless of how awesome that you think you've been, by God's standard, you will fall woefully short. And so here's the predicament. If every one of us were left to ourselves, we would be separated from God for eternity. God knowing this and being abundantly compassionate and gracious with sinners like you and me, there's no types of categories. There's not good people and sinners. They're just sinners, and some sinners think they're good people. Okay? That, that's the only categories. And God is so compassionate and so loving that he sent his son Jesus because you can't do what you need to do to get saved. You can't save yourself. 
Christ had to come, the second person in the Trinity. God had to take on human flesh. He had to dwell among us. Why? So he could perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law of God, his standard, that you did not fulfill, that you have butchered your entire life. Okay? And then he suffered and died in your place for your sin because you need the righteousness of Christ, but you also need the penalty of your sin paid for. He suffered and died in your place on a cross. His blood was shed so that you could have life through him, through his sacrifice. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, God accepting, receiving the sacrifice of the son as sufficient for all who would turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. There is no good works involved. There is no you involved. It is only Jesus. It is always Jesus. It is Jesus giving you the gift that you could not otherwise obtain. It is the free gift of God's grace. And anything that messes with that gospel is a problem. Anything that takes that gospel and begins to tweak it ever so slightly begins to just use the Bible in an unbiblical way, to start giving you a platform by which you feel like you can stand apart from the merits of Christ, you have a problem. And anytime we see that taking place in the church, we have a responsibility to look at that and take it as seriously as Paul does. Paul has this charge because it's that serious. You mess with the gospel, you pervert, you cloud the only means by which anyone will ever be saved. Paul says, this charge, what's the charge? Get people to stop teaching things that are contradictory to the gospel. That I am entrusting to you. This is this word that Paul has. Paul was entrusted by God, verse 11, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Right? This is Paul's entrusting. God has entrusted it to Paul, and Paul is now entrusting it to Timothy. And this word entrust, it's an interesting word. It's a legal term indicating something left in another's care for whose safety that person is responsible. Paul's saying, I'm giving you the gospel and it's your responsibility to take it and two things are implied by the word in trust. You're to preserve it purely and you're to pass it on faithfully. That's what you gotta do. Listen, if if you don't sense in your own mind as a Christian your responsibility to join with the saints in doing that, you don't understand the importance of the gospel. We, we have got to preserve it purely. We have got to pass it on faithfully. This is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He is the next man up. He is the next generation. He is talking to Timothy, and we know this relationship already. He calls Timothy his child. Because to Paul, Timothy was his child in the faith. The term of affection, but also a term that conveys this responsibility that Paul is speaking on behalf of his apostolic authority to Timothy, saying, this is your responsibility. God has called you to this. And I am affirming that as I say this. But then he goes on to say this. There's another aspect to the call. It's not just Paul's apostolic encouragement. But then he says this, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Why does he have to talk about this stuff? This seems like a, why can't he just start by saying wage the good warfare? Isn't that what he's trying to get to? I feel like in our day and age, it's like, hey, hey, get to the point. What's the point? Wage the good warfare. Yeah, okay, that's the point. 
So why are you talking about prophecies made and this charge and it's so solemn and all this stuff? Get, come on, Paul. He's trying to put steel in Timothy's backbone. He's trying to give him confidence, right? He's got to go and he's got to battle these guys. You think leaders that hold to a false gospel are just going to roll over and be like, oh, oh, thanks for the purity of that. Okay, sounds great. Why don't you take over the church? You think that, how does that go? So I don't think Timothy's like super stoked about this going, hey, I got this on my own. I can take them. If it comes down to a fight, let's go. I don't think that's how he's seeing this. And so Paul's encouraging you. Remember the prophecies that were made about you? The prophecies, plural. Interestingly, it says, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, and other translations have the prophecies that Paul says led me to you, speaking to Timothy, the prophecies that led me to you. What's interesting about that is that may even be a better translation in the sense that I think it captures the idea of what's going on here, that when Paul and Barnabas separated, Paul was looking for a divine successor to Barnabas. And we know he picked up Silas for a time, but Silas wasn't his kind of long-term solution. I think, in fact, Timothy was that guy. And that there were elders in the church who were laying their hands on and affirming the call of Timothy, affirming his gifts and saying, here's the guy. And then when Paul meets Timothy, it's like the Lord aligned through the prophecies and the laying on of hands of the elders to find the guy that he's to entrust the gospel to. That he can entrust this responsibility to in this church, this incredibly important church. And he does it for several reasons. One, don't forget that when the Lord laid hands on you through the elders, that was him affirming you in the call to ministry. But it's not just the confidence there, but it's the confidence that when God calls you to something, he's going to supply what you need. Timothy, everything that you lack, all the nervousness that you may have, all the incompetencies, every feeling of like weakness that you feel in this moment, I want you to know that what God calls you to, he will supply for you. And the way I know that is because the word prophecies, if you see how it's used in the early church, it's always confirmed with spiritual gifting in mind. So 1 Timothy 4.14, later on in the book, it says, do not neglect the gift you have. Paul talking to Timothy, don't neglect that gift, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells Timothy again, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, you are called to this, but even more, if I've called you to it, you're gifted for it, go boldly contend for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that? Go in confidence. It's not you and your own strength. It's not you in flesh and blood. It's God approving that. It's God giving you the confidence to go forward. You have the apostolic authority from Paul, which we have the apostolic authority now through the word of God. And it's the ecclesial authority of the church and the laying on the hands and the confirming of spiritual gifts. This is to give confidence to Timothy that the call that he has to address this situation is affirmed by the elders and it's affirmed by the apostles through Paul. And for all of that, for this reason, and this is the point of the passage, this is the main emphasis, that by them, by these prophecies, right, 
this divine revelation that was given to the early church to appoint and affirm gifts and giftings and leaders. It's the way it's being used here. He says that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, the word wage here is the word where we get strategy actually from in the English. You would get the word strategy from this word, and it means to fight as a soldier. Okay, so this is spiritual warfare. So when I was talking earlier about everyone, we talk about spiritual warfare, and it's like demon exorcisms is the only thing we can think of in spiritual warfare. I want you to know that demon exorcisms is not at all in this view at all. Okay, so... He's talking about fighting. He's also not talking about fist fighting, right? right? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He's talking about waging this good warfare. The word warfare here means campaign. Like it's not just a dust up. So, so I'm playing in this basketball league. Everyone loves stories. I'm playing in this basketball league and I'm like backing up to play defense and all of a sudden, two guys on their own team, on the bench, start punching each other right in the middle of the game. Come out into the court, swing. Now, thank God they can't fight. It was like this and like that. <laughs> if one of them knew how to fight, it would be over because a straight punch would have done all the damage. But it was like, do we step in? Do you guys want to get your own teammates to stop this? Like, How do you want us to play this right now? And they're like, yeah, 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 we got it. And they're like, come on, man, we'll take it outside. And the refs are like, I don't get paid enough. You can do that if you want. So they walk outside. But you know what happened? They probably swung a few more times, got exhausted because fighting is tiring. They stopped, they made up, and they're probably at the next basketball game the next week. Right? And the likelihood of them fighting again, eh, it may happen, but it probably doesn't happen all the time. That's not the kind of fighting that's going on here. What he's talking about is not just to like swing a couple times, get tired, and you're over with. No, he's saying wage the good warfare, wage this campaign. The language is like this long term, you're going to be in it for a while. Like expect this warfare to continue. Like expect this warfare to continue into history. I know we celebrate Halloween today, but did you know that one of the things that we celebrate as well is the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation? Right, which is awesome. 505 next year, I'm thinking 505th anniversary, do all the five solas next year in October. Yeah? Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone, scriptures alone. We're going to do all those next year for the 505th. You know, because pastors got to do that, right? If we're not alliterating, we've got to at least get something connected like that. So you don't get it this year. But what you do get at the 504th anniversary of the Reformation is a reminder that the gospel was subverted and perverted by the Catholic Church. It was so lost and obscured by the tradition of the church and the indulgences that were used to pay off your sin, we lost all sight of the gospel. When he says wage the good warfare, he was expecting there would be things like that to happen well beyond the time frame of Paul and Timothy. That's not surprising that later on we would have to wage these battles for the gospel and thank God those battles were fought. Battles to hold fast to justification by faith alone, amen? Apart from anything that you've done, the justification is a legal declaration of God declaring you righteous despite the fact that you aren't. He has declared you righteous because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his person and his work in your place. When God looks at you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he looks at you as he looks at his son. 
and he declares you legally righteous. By faith, the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account. He sees you as if you lived Jesus' life. Thank God for those who fought the good warfare. Thank God for people like Martin Luther who nailed the 95 theses to that Wittenberg church door knowing this wasn't a fleshly war, so he wasn't using fleshly weapons. He used a hammer, but it was 95 theses he wrote on there. Why? Because he understood that we must use divine weapons to tear down spiritual strongholds where the battle rages. You know where the battle rages in spiritual warfare? In the realm of the truth. It rages against the truth. Spiritual warfare is built up into so many varieties of lies. The way I would say it is there's constantly new garbs put on old ideologies that are presented to the church at strategic moments. There is nothing new under the sun, but it always seems new, and it's perfect. Satan has been watching human history for so long he knows exactly what happens. Throw everyone into a panic because of the pandemic and then slip a few things in there and they're like, ah, they, we freak out. We don't know what to do. And it's just dressed up a different way. Same old lie, new garb. This is what Satan has always been doing. He's been looking for ways to use old lies that appeal to the Christian in this context. Paul says it like this. That our battle in 2 Corinthians 10 is against every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. I feel like the Christian church these days, it's like, oh man, do we really need to fight about that? And there's for sure some things that we don't need to fight about. There's some things that Christians need to get off their hobby horses and not make those battles where they just look down with such self-righteous judgment on other Christians, or maybe even non-Christians. But there are other things where the battle does need to be fought, but here's the problem. Again, everyone's too nice. No one actually wants to fight. And so we have this scenario where it's like, we have these terms, do we or these questions, do we really want to fight about that? Can't we just, we love unity so much. And listen, Unity is not real unless it's rallying around the truth. We have been sold a book of lies that says unity can rally around love. We're just going to rally around love. If we just love each other, that's going to make us unified. Here's the problem. The Bible. You rally around the truth. I was talking to a gal who's been a friend of mine since I got here uh, with the radio station, one of the local radio stations here. Christian radio stations, and she was expressing to me this conviction that she had about, it's not really her place or her role, but this conviction about, you know, policing who gets on to preach, right? Who, who gets on and who are they allowing to preach? And she, she has this desire to want to like, you know, kind of put her foot down with some people, if you, if you know what she's kind of meaning by that. And, um, but then there's always, and I, I heard it in the conversation a couple times, there's this creeping temptation, and she kind of said it like this. She said, aren't we better when we hear the diversity of voices in the church. Now that sounds so noble. Now here's the thing. We are better for hearing the diversity of voices in the church so long as they're preaching the truth. Here's what I said. Can we rally? Can we, what, what can we do? Can we, can we create some sort of way 
to at least agree on what the gospel is. And all of a sudden she's like, oh, I don't even think we could do that. I don't think we could get there and have a robust, definitive understanding of the Bible. See, if we could get a rally around the gospel, we can disagree on secondary and tertiary issues. But if we can't even rally around the gospel, or if the gospel you're preaching tends to change when you share it. Here's the thing. You come to docs, you're like, he says the same thing every week. Yeah, huh? Because it's the best news. Here's the great thing, and I think Calvin said this, but I'm going to rip it off of Calvin. He said something like, hey, some people may preach the gospel better than I do, but there's no better news, so it doesn't really matter. Okay? So it's the same thing over and over and over again. And we got to rally around the gospel. I'm not talking about secondary and tertiary issues that we got to make sure you hold all of these things, but we got to believe in like the authority of the scriptures. We got to believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We got to believe in penal substitutionary atonement. We got to believe in the deity of Christ. Like if we can't rally around those things, if we have people that are waffling on those key issues, we don't have a place for unity. And unfortunately, there's so much out there and like, I remember just even talking about it and kind of getting passionate about it. I'm going, oh, I'm the meanie. I'm the mean guy. I'm viewed that way because I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not asking for a bunch. I'm asking for the gospel to be clear. If we can't rally around the gospel, we have a problem. And that conversation isn't always welcomed. And so I think what he's telling Timothy in the beginning of this is, listen, take confidence in your calling just because people don't agree with you, just because people don't like your perspective. Listen, if you come in to confront darkness, there's going to be people on the side of darkness that don't like what you have to say. So I think he's saying, take confidence in your confirmed calling. Understand it comes with suffering. Understand it comes with seeking to please an audience of one that you may not please others. Spiritual battle wages for the gospel. God's servant must take the right things with them. Start with a confidence in the calling God's given you. The calling that you know the, Bible, the gospel to be true as the Bible is made clear calling from the church, the laying on of hands to send out Timothy's to be entrusted to preserve and protect the gospel. And then the second thing, God's servant must take with them a close watch on their orthodoxy and their obedience. Carry with them a close watch on their orthodoxy and their obedience. This is so huge. When you're facing battles, you cannot take your foot off the pedal of your own orthodoxy and your own obedience. You know what I'm saying when I say orthodoxy? Ortho, right, doxy, teaching. The truths of the scriptures. When Jude says to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the faith being the comprehensive understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith, orthodoxy, right teaching, right obedience. This is not something different from the themes in 1 Timothy. We see in 1 Timothy 4.16 that he is to keep a watch of himself and the teaching. So, 
Here's where he needs to operate from, a position of orthodoxy and obedience. As you enter in, as temptations are riding high, as you're prone to wanting to do something other than run to God when you need God in the midst of the battles, you're like, I just need to break for a second. Can I just lean into something else other than orthodoxy and obedience? And Paul's like, no, you need to stay right there. This charge that I entrust to you, the gospel, protecting it, preserving it, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, i.e. you're the guy for the job, that by them you may wage the good warfare, not a short thing, a little dust up in the gym, long-term campaign. Here's how you need to do it, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, or, or keeping faith. Now, it's not like um, so many gospel presentations I hear. It's like, if you believe really hard to the end, you'll be saved. When he says keeping the faith, this isn't like, okay, I have manly grip. I'm just going to hold on for dear life. That's not what he's talking about, okay? When he's saying keeping the faith, it's not you just anchoring yourself down. I believe, I believe. Look at how strong my faith is, God. It's not like that. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about what your faith is in. It's amazing that when your faith is in the right thing, you can have faith as small as a mustard seed and see tremendous things happen from the Lord. When he says holding the faith, he's literally saying keep your faith in the faith. The Christian church, excuse me, the Christian doctrines that make up scripture, holding the content of the faith. You need to, you need to know your Bibles inside and out. Do you hear me? We have a vague understanding, and we, we do this. We throw a verse out out of context and then say something about how God told me something. Eh, that's got to go. We need to understand the Bible. We need to understand the Bible in its context. This is absolutely essential. He's saying, hold on to the faith. If you can't articulate the faith, how the heck are you going to hold on to it? You got to hold on to the faith, not just holding on, I believe the right things, I believe the right things, but you believe in them. And you know how you see it? You're living it out. You're not just hearing the word, you are obeying the word, which leads us to having a good conscience. Why would you have a good conscience? Well, if you're holding faith and you're actually legitimately living it out, then you're clear on what's true and you're walking in it, right? Isn't a clear conscience just the product of the fact that you know God's word to be true, you're obedient to it, and you're walking by faith in it? So he says, hold fast to do those two things, and then this is where it gets so interesting. He says, by rejecting this, what is this? He didn't say by rejecting these. He says by rejecting this. What's this? What would you think? A good conscience. That's not rocket science, right? Right in context. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Listen, guys, rejecting is such a strong word here. Acts 7.39, it describes the rejection of the authority of Moses by those who begged Aaron to make a golden calf to worship. Moses is like, here's the authority. This is biblical authority that had been trusted to Moses by the Lord, and they're like, forget that. We want to make this idol. This is deliberate. This is active, not passive. 
This is a not wanting to do, wanting nothing to do with any sense of obedience to a particular article of the Christian faith. This is making a conscious, deliberate choice to reject the truth. We, we play this game and we use the phrase, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you ever hear that before? I'm sure you have. Um, th there's this debate trying to figure out what comes first when a person slides into apostasy? What comes first when a person slides into heresy? What comes first when a person adopts, for example, a full-blown homosexual lifestyle? is that they read it and saw it in the scriptures and came to a theological conviction and then their morals just simply followed? In other words, was the theological part the egg or was the moral part the egg? What came first, the chicken or the egg? And what he's telling us right here is, don't be mistaken. The person's choice is not built upon an intellectual problem or a theological decision first. It is first and foremost a moral issue. One, one commentator said it like this, moral delinquency, not intellectual problems, is the root of the heresy. And listen, that shouldn't surprise us. Romans 1 has been clear. It's when people are determined to live in unrighteousness that they suppress the truth, right? You don't suppress the truth if you believe God in his word and you want to walk in that and you believe that's the best possible way your life can go. You don't abandon that unless you believe morally that you would like to go another direction and so you do and then you bring on a theology that accommodates your moral drift. So, I think it explains a lot of the people that have fallen in ministry over the last four or five years in the celebrity culture. There's a bunch of celebrity culture pastors that are wonky in their theology, but I've been surprised at the amount of solid theological. It wasn't their theology. is They were making movements morally, and then they tried to incorporate their new morality into their theology. They were trying to read in a different kind of approach to church leadership. They were trying to read in a different kind of approach to accommodate where they were shifting morally. This is what takes place. When you reject a good conscience, which is choosing not to walk in line with the word of God, what happens is once everyone does it, they flip it and say, it was theological first. It was theological first. And what they're telling you, what the Bible's telling you is, no, 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 it's moral first. Don't believe it. It was moral first. You don't suppress the truth unless you want to walk in unrighteousness first. And then what you do is you need a theology that accommodates my moral shift. So you say, I want this behavior and I'm going to find someone on Amazon who's written a commentary to support that and that's going to be like, thus saith the Lord. Like we get a little bit close when Charles Spurgeon speaks as if it's almost like on par with scripture, right? For the solid Christians around here. It's like, oh, Spurgeon said it. Pfft. Basically in line with scripture. Yeah, that's like a more positive example, but imagine someone else who's like, I want this moral peace in my lifestyle, so I'm gonna get some guy, usually with a lot of degrees, a lot of letters after his name, and I'm gonna get him to support this perspective. Here's the problem Paul's saying it right here. It starts morally. You disregard the conscience and your faith will not survive long. Faith in the faith. You may have a faith still, but it's no longer faith in the faith. 
And it seems to precisely be Paul's point. By rejecting this, what? By rejecting a good conscience, and how does that happen? It's a moral shift leading to then an accommodationist theology that then adds whatever position. So if you want to keep your faith, you pull in your position, you keep your faith by shifting the faith a little bit, having a theology that agrees. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Think of your conscience like a rudder for the ship of your life, okay? You take out the rudder of a boat and you will find yourself surely in time on a beach somewhere, not for a vacation, where you shouldn't be. The rudder is massive. You lose the rudder of your ship and you will find your ship shipwrecked real quick. You don't apply in your obedience what you believe in your orthodoxy. You don't accept in its fullness what the Bible says, especially in its clear parts, which is overwhelmingly, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear. We just don't like what it says. And so if you abandon the good conscience, we're going to have a problem. He says some have made shipwreck of their faith. It's such graphic language. Well, it's to teach us a grave lesson. He's looking at us and he's going, don't fall prey to the same errors. Hold your, con- your conscience and your convictions clearly. Listen, parents, even if you have a really soft spot in your heart for someone who wants to do this, hold your convictions clearly. Am I speaking to you understanding this? When your kids grow up and they were in the youth group all this time and then they walk away, it is heartbreaking and crushing and you want to accommodate to your children, the most loving thing you can do is refuse to stop loving them but also to refuse to cave in to the the convictional differences that they now have. Don't cave in. Hold fast. Love them well by refusing to give up the conviction. You guys know the story. I'll just say something really quick about my dad. When my dad died, you guys know he was an unbeliever, right? He was an atheist. And, and there's sometimes this like temptation that when he dies and it's out, I, I pictured my dad getting baptized in here. You know what I'm saying? Like I shared the gospel with him and I thought one day he's going to get in that baptismal and we're going to baptize him. And that water's going to splash out. And then the best part, it's the splashing out of the water or the hug pound where the, where the water shoots out. You know what I'm saying? Like, you want to be in the splash zone on baptisms. It's like four rows in right here. And like, I just envisioned that happening with my dad and then he dies tragically, right? And so the whole mentality is, I can keep telling myself, oh, he's okay, maybe in the last seconds and maybe we don't really know. And it's true, we don't really know. But I refuse to compromise my convictions to incorporate what happened to my dad into it so I feel better about myself. We don't know. I don't know the last minutes with my dad. I I don't know. And I do hold out that hope, but not in a sense that leads me to go, well, somehow I can finagle away where he got into heaven anyway. No, I'm crushed about it. I wanted something different, but I'm not going to change my convictions because I trust God and he is good. We got to do that. I think that's what Paul's telling Timothy A good servant has to take with him, even when you have a soft spot for someone in your heart, their orthodoxy and their obedience. And then he finishes here. He says, you've got to take with you a commitment to church discipline. Okay, you've got to take with you a commitment to church discipline. 
he finishes by saying, among whom, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay? So he's giving example. Paul is calling out names. Hymenaeus, Alexander. What's important about Hymenaeus? We don't really know much about him. He's mentioned again in 2 Timothy 2 with a guy named Philetus for preaching, essentially, that the resurrection had already happened, and you're all, well, you're all in trouble. I had a different word in mind that I can't use up here. We're all in trouble if the resurrection has already happened. Alexander, multiple references to Alexander in the New Testament. It was a common name, but honestly, it's not important to determine who this was. Was this Alexander the coppersmith from 2 Timothy 4? Was this Alexander from Acts 19.33? Here's the thing, it doesn't matter. But what we have here instead is two people that Paul had to address that wouldn't repent of their sin, whom he had to hand over to Satan. Again, because we live in a very comfortable context, we have no space in our theology for church discipline. God forbid we were to bring someone up here and people would just freak out. Oh, I cannot believe they do that. I am out of here. And yet this is exactly what God has called us to. He says that he handed over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The, the language is to give over, has the sense of to abandon. And, and what he's really doing with these guys is they were living in their unrepentant sin by holding unfaithful, blasphemous beliefs, beliefs that misrepresented God, beliefs that misrepresented the gospel. They were using the Bible unbiblically. They were using the law unlawfully. Paul has had to address this already with Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he's saying, I handed them over, I gave them over to the realm they have functionally chosen, because when you choose to sin, that ain't for this realm. We are sinners that are fighting sin in this realm. You push the sinners out that don't want to fight sin, that want to live in sin. You, you just let them have the, what they want. You give them their world. You put them out of the church. This is the language here that Paul is using. And, and interestingly enough, the, the, probably the closest parallel to 1 Timothy 1 is 1 Corinthians 5, which we covered already. Do you remember that scenario? Where you had some dude sleeping with his stepmom? And the church was like, I don't know, they're happy. Like, Paul has to like get on them. Like, bro, you're, you guys are so arrogant. Now, now, there's a process to this, right? Matthew 18 is clear, there's a process. You don't just kick someone out of the church, you know? Every church wants a cannon poof, to send those people out. You don't do that because church discipline is ultimately redemptive. So Matthew 18 is clear. You got someone that sinned against you, you go to that person and what? Confront them, discuss it. If they repent, you won your brother. If they don't, what happens? You take a witness with you. Second opportunity, spread out over time, pleading with them to repent. Here's a witness, asking for you, brother, sister, to repent. They don't repent, you do what? You tell it to the church. They still don't repent at the prayers and the pleadings of the entire church body. Then what do you do? You let them be unto you a tax collector or a sinner. In the context of 1 Corinthians 5, in the context of 1 Timothy 1, we are talking about putting this person out of the church. Why? Because you're handing them over to Satan. Where is Satan's realm? The world. 
You know he's the one that controls the world and its systems. He is the prince of the power of the air. Paul's saying, listen, you're in a battle, Timothy. Here's the example that I've set. I've had to put people out of the church. I don't love it, but it's part of what you do when you're in warfare. And I'm telling you, you're going to need to carry that same duty of discipline with you. Because if you're fighting battles over the truth, you're going to eventually have people that don't want to repent and you have to have a way to remove them for the purity of the church. Does this make sense? Again, if we don't believe we're in a war, we're going to be like so flabbergasted when it happens. If we believed we were in a war, none of this would be a shock at all. It's that we don't believe and then someone's going to be like, <gasps> when it actually happens. And by the way, lower levels of it is happening. And why do you do this? Here's the redemptive aspect of it, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's always a redemptive aspect. God's not looking to just kick them out, just to get out of here. There's always a redemptive piece, this training word that they may learn it is this word for training through discipline. It's often applied under with physical discipline in mind, like a parent with a child. The, the language here can also be used of divine discipline, like moving someone out from under the blessing, out from under the protection, out from under the covering of the church. Like 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, help them get a sense for their evil that they may be ashamed. And then ultimately, here's the thing, you want them to sense the fact that, oh my goodness, I have lost the benefits and blessing of being under the covering of God's grace in the church. And that being separated from the community and separated from the graces of that has allowed me to see that my views, that my propagation of false gospel realities was blasphemy not only to God, but blasphemy to the gospel. And the hope is, of course, in 2 Timothy 2, that God may grant them repentance leading to life. Guys, this is the hard work of war. You'll notice I didn't say anything about exercising demons. It was entirely about protecting the truth of the gospel, of which Paul was given responsibility. He entrusted it to Timothy, and look at us all these generations later, and we're still protecting. Do you realize that? We're still protecting the same gospel. Your kids, my kids, the next generation is dependent on us to preserve the gospel. May they, found us, may they find us to be faithful in that. May they find us to be remembering the responsibility again and again. We're going to come to the table because we should, because it's a reminder of the gospel, because it's an assurance for us where we're walking in struggle and sin, where we come as God's people and we gather with the bread and the cup, we take it together as one body, proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. This is a meal that is shared amongst believers, so if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, here'd be my thought, don't come up and take communion, give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Trust him by faith that he has died for your sins and risen for your salvation. Put all the eggs of your future hope in that basket of Christ and Christ alone, okay? You start there. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when I'm done, why don't you come up, grab the double cup, the bread representing the body of Christ, the cup representing his blood. We're gonna remember afresh 
the centrality of the gospel. We're going to live in light of it. We're going to celebrate it. And we're going to come up equally because there's no one that comes up in an unequal standing to the table. We all, doesn't matter how awesome you are as a Christian, if you're varsity, if you're JV, at the table, Peter would say you have a faith of like standing with ours. With Peter and the apostles. So come, we take, hold on to it. Pastor Ben will lead us as we continue. Come when you're ready.